Section 89 of Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jordan P. Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Hill of the Winds, Part 4. Chapter 6. There were some transactions between Miss Edgelow and Samuel whereby the former became possessed of two adored orange-hued kittens, fluffy morsels of fur and mischief that gambled about her feet as she walked in the Edgelow garden and frisked after her in the whispering lane. She did distracting things with them. At least Romney found them distracting. She cuddled them under her lovely chin and kissed the sun-warm tops of their round, velvety heads. Romney knew she was doing it deliberately— on purpose, out of malice aforethought to drive him crazy, and she very nearly succeeded in spite of his knowledge of her arts. Sometimes he gloomily wished he could wring the necks of those little beasts. Only a conviction that Samuel would get her more prevented him from putting them out of the way in some underhanded fashion. Yet often the pretty picture Sylvia and her little cats made in the prim, stately, haunted old garden charmed him. He wished that he were an artist and could paint her, Failing that, he wrote her into his new serial so vividly that she took possession of it and played Hob with his plot. It would never do for the magazine he meant it for, or any other, and his summer's work would go for nothing and he would be minus several hundred dollars and be on short commons for the winter. But still he wrote on at it, and would have nothing to do with any other tale. Occasionally he talked to Samuel about it, and Samuel told of it what seemed good unto him to Miss Edgelow. Samuel was not satisfied with what he had done. He had meant to keep those two apart and had not succeeded. He had meant to keep Romney to himself, and Romney spent all the time he was not in the tower room at work, mooning about in the whispering lane with Miss Edgelow. Samuel was disgruntled and took his revenge as he might. Both Romney and Miss Edgelow made a great pet of him, but that did not worry the vacuum where his conscience wasn't in the least. He was an artistic liar and never told either of them anything that sounded out of keeping, so they kept on believing him and mistrusting each other and hankering for each other and meeting each other. Aunt Elizabeth and old Jim were not supposed to know anything about it, and perhaps they didn't. Miss Edgelow was very curious about the story Romney was writing of which she was the heroine. But he never mentioned it to her, and she would not betray Samuel by mentioning it to him. She vowed, though, that he should have a final scene for it which he would never forget, and, with this in view, she was as sweet to him as if she really had been the coquette he believed her, and perhaps she was. At least she was secretly much dissatisfied with her progress. Romney said delicious things to her and looked things still more delicious, and played the part of devoted admirer to perfection. But Miss Edgelow wanted more than admiration— to spurn admiration would inflict no real wound, teach no lasting lesson. She wanted him to love her, so that he might feel it to the core of his soul when she finally laughed at him and dismissed him. And so far, in spite of three weeks' delectable companionship and pretty speeches and prettier silences and moons and stars and kittens, she could give herself no assurance that he really cared a penny's worth for her. Her failure annoyed her and caused her to say sarcastic things to old Jim. Romney considered that he was still a wise and prudent young man. He congratulated himself on his ability to refrain from loving not wisely but too well when there was such a temptation to it. 
Not many men, he reflected, would have kept their heads in the face of such provocation, even though they knew her for a professed flirt and themselves for paupers. They would have been fools and fallen fathoms deep in love without being able to help themselves. Now he, Romney, was not a fool. True, sometimes at three o'clock at night wisdom and prudence seemed rather ugly and sordid virtues, and Romney thought it might have been just as well to let himself go, to put his neck under her scornful little foot and let her play with his heart and throw it away, and spend all his wealth and power of loving in one splendid, unreasonable, unreasoning burst of folly. But around the rest of the clock he was complacent and kept telling himself he had done well to keep fast hold of his heart. This was his state of mind when Clifford Hughes came to see him. Hughes was the owner of the string of magazines for one of which Romney had once intended his serial. Hughes wanted to know about the serial, and was disgruntled because Romney told him it would never do. But that was not really what Hughes had come to talk about. He had fallen hopelessly in love and got himself engaged, and he was so blindly, besottedly happy that he had to tell somebody all about the affair, and Romney was the only fellow he could tell about it. Romney had always been a dreamy, romantic chap. Romney would sympathize with him, so he sat in the tower room and raved for hours. Romney listened and sympathized and grew more dismayed every minute. This fellow Hughes was saying about his lady just what he, Romney, wanted to say about Sylvia. This fellow Hughes was disgruntingly happy in the very way he, Romney, wanted to be happy, in the very way he could be happy if Sylvia loved him as Hughes's lady loved him. Romney was shocked and alarmed and upset, and didn't know what he was saying to Hughes half the time. He only realized that a truly dreadful state of affairs had come about all at once. He loved Sylvia, loved her just as wholly and madly as ever man loved woman. How could he have been so blind and besotted not to have known it before? Why, he had loved her from the moment he had first seen her in the Edgelow garden, and she didn't care a snap for him, and he couldn't ask her to marry him if she did, and how was he ever to get himself past three o'clock that night? Then he would realize his position to the full, and even now it was quite unbearable. "'Hello,' said Hughes, looking out of the window. "'Who's the pretty girl over there, Cooper?' "'Pretty girl!' Hopeless idiot, blind bat, couldn't he see that Sylvia was the most beautiful woman in the world? "'Sil, Dorcas Edgelow,' said Romney indifferently. "'Know her?' "'I've a nodding acquaintance with her,' said Romney indifferently. "'You know there's an old feud between the families. "'It has petered out pretty well in our generation, "'but it doesn't make for cordiality.' "'I see. Pity. She's really quite nice-looking.' "'Then Hughes dropped the subject. "'To prevent any possible return to it, Romney took him fishing. "'He forgot to ask Samuel, and Samuel was so furious "'that he went straight to Miss Edgelow and told her that he had been fishing with them and heard them talking about her, and Romney had told the city man that she was a nice small thing and he could have her for the asking, but didn't mean to ask because he was too poor and a wife was a nuisance anyway. Samuel, being angry, was less artistic than usual, and for the first time Miss Edgelow wondered if he was not painting the lily. He looked so guileless and cherubic that it was hard to believe it of him, but really Romney Cooper didn't seem like a man who would say such things to a friend about any girl. Nevertheless, Samuel couldn't be making it all up out of whole cloth. Something must have been said. She was very disdainful and saucy when Romney came that night to the Whispering Lane, but all her disdain and sauciness didn't keep her away from the lane, nor making a very careful toilet before she went there, nor from looking radiantly entrancing when she got there. "'So your friend has gone?' she said. "'Yes, thank heaven,' said Romney. "'If he had stayed any longer, I should have gone crazy.' Do your friends always have that effect on you? 
No, not always, but he is engaged to be married. He was so insultingly happy that I couldn't tolerate him, and he kept talking about his lady fair when I wanted to be talking about mine. Oh, so you have one? Miss Edgelow tucked a kitten under her chin and spoke only with languid interest. Yes, I've never told you about her, have I? Not that I remember. May I? I suppose I've caught the infection from Hughes. I want to talk about her tonight. You don't mind? Oh, no, quite graciously. Her name, began Romney gravely, is Sylvia. It couldn't be anything else. Sylvia is the only name in any language that absolutely suits and expresses her. We had an old black cook once named Sylvia, murmured Miss Edgelow reminiscently. Go on. Her name is Sylvia. She is about five feet six. She has jet black hair that grows off her face in a widow's peak. She has a creamy skin and lips as red as the rose of love. She has wonderful hands. She has straight black brows. She has eyes that are... Why, I swear they are dark, dark blue. It has only come home to me this minute what color they really are. She has such a trick of veiling them with her lashes, you know. She has no imperfections, of course, said Miss Edgelow, a trifle contemptuously. Oh, yes. She isn't Tennyson's Maud at all. Not faultily faultless, not she. She has a number of little golden freckles, and her nose is... is... crooked, suggested Miss Edgelow. She smiled a bit. No, no, not crooked. I swear it's not crooked. Just a trifle more than aquiline. Miss Edgelow was quite angry. She knew, let it be accounted unto her for vanity or not, that Romney was describing her to her face. He was trying out a scene for his story in all probability. It will be very witch-like when she grows old, no doubt. Sylvia will never grow old, said Romney. She is the incarnation of eternal youth. Does this paragon return your affection? dared Miss Edgelow. Alas, no. She laughs at me. She mocks me. She doesn't care for me at all. It's just as well, of course. I can't marry her, you see. Why not? Miss Edgelow's lashes hid her eyes very securely. She is rich and going to be richer. I am poor and will probably be poorer. Besides, as aforesaid, she doesn't and couldn't care for me. This, thought Miss Edgelow, is the point of the story where I should say, Have you asked her? With the soft pedal on, I shall not say anything of the sort. Instead, I shall say, You are very likely correct in your opinion. I know I am, said Romney, folding his arms and scowling ferociously at space. I know I am, but oh, you have no idea how madly I love her, how madly I shall always love her. How many girls have you loved, always, before her? asked Miss Edgelow impertinently. Not one. I never even fancied I loved before. How uninteresting. Now I, Miss Edgelow paused and went through the motions of a blush, I have been in love, or imagined myself in love, several times, three to be exact, yet I am soundly heart-whole at the present moment, so you see there is hope of your ultimate recovery. I shall never recover. I don't want to recover. Why didn't you marry those men? It is not permitted to marry three men, said Miss Edgelow plaintively. And there were other reasons. One of them was a young lawyer. He was the handsomest man I had ever known. He had piggy eyes. I swear he had piggy eyes, said Romney viciously. He had not, and he made love so artistically it was quite a pleasure to listen to him. He must have had heaps of practice, still more viciously. The same idea occurred to me, said Miss Edgelow composedly. I think that was why I didn't marry him. A man with a talent like that couldn't bury it in a napkin. He'd have to keep on using it. The second object of my affections was a professor of McGill. He was the cleverest man I ever met. Moon face, pursy mouth, tortoise shell glasses, I can see him, said Romney. 
"'He was very intellectual-looking,' murmured Miss Edgelow, "'and yet he asked me my opinion about things. "'That was his way of making love. It was agreeable. "'But I had a presentiment that after we were married "'he would stop asking my opinions. "'That would not be agreeable.' "'There was a third, I think,' said Romney, "'seeing that Miss Edgelow had lapsed into apparent reverie. "'Oh, yes, there was a third. "'Note the tense. "'He is, was, moderately good-looking and moderately clever. "'I think I liked him better than any of the others. "'Why didn't you marry him?' "'He didn't ask me to. "'He... "'He told me he loved another lady. "'He even described her to me, talked to me about her. "'I couldn't with any self-respect care for him one moment after that, could I?' Miss Edgelow shot an upward glance at Romney before her concluding words. Romney remembered what Samuel had said, old Mary Edgelow had said. She can't help making eyes at any man who happens to be around. She's luring me on, he thought miserably. I won't be lured. She can laugh at me in her sleeve, but she shall not have the satisfaction of laughing at me openly. He strode on in silence. They turned at the gate and walked back. At the entrance to the lane they paused. The old Edgelow house and garden, drowned in lilac sunset light, incredibly delicate and elusive, lay below them in a dip of the long hill. They stood and looked down on it. After a long silence, Miss Edgelow said dreamily, "'It is a house of memories. I am haunted by them. So many Edgelow women, and all unhappy. There has never been a happy Edgelow woman, or if they were happy, they were never happy long. Some of them deserved their unhappiness. Some of them didn't. I wonder—' Miss Edgelow looked reflective. In which class I shall belong? She has taken a new tack. She is trying to play on my sympathy now, thought Romney. She is not content with my veiled avowal. She must have my scalp to dangle openly at her belt. She can't claim it yet because her name is not Sylvia. Some of the Edgelow men were to blame for their woman's unhappiness, weren't they? He said. Yes, some. I think Uncle Jim must have been a horrid sort of husband. I was here one summer when I was a little girl— I have never forgotten Aunt Fanny's eyes. She died by inches through the years. Most of the other tragedies were sudden and speedy. Tell me about them, if you don't mind talking about them. Oh, I don't. I'm rather proud of my family ghosts and demons. I shall be one of them some day, and I shall come and haunt this old place. Our house in Montreal isn't really ghostable. I shall wander about this old garden, and my ghost chum will be Thyra Edgelow, great-uncle Fairfax's bride. Just a few weeks after her marriage, she went gaily out to those woods away over there to gather nuts and never returned. What happened to her? That question has been asked a thousand times and never answered. She simply vanished from among the living that autumn afternoon. No trace of her was ever discovered. Some thought she must have been drowned in the river and her body swept out to sea. Some thought, but there were all sorts of surmises. She hadn't wanted to marry Fairfax Edgelow, it seems. She was a gay, merry creature. Then there were Tom and Dorothy Edgelow. They were married children. He was nineteen and she was seventeen. They had one glorious summer in that old house, at least. He was Grandfather Edgelow's brother. They both died in the same week of typhoid. Great Aunt Edith was a wonderful musician and very ambitious. One of her hands was so mangled by a door slamming on it that she could never play again. She went insane brooding over it. Uncle Jim's sister, Aunt Lillian, was killed by lightning in the room I sleep in, struck while trying on her wedding dress. The Edgelow fate seems to have a special hatred of our brides. None of us have been happy in our love affairs. It's the old Edgelow curse, you know. We have a family curse as well as a family feud, you see. I never heard of the curse. What of it? My great-great-great-grandfather, Thomas Edgelow, was a harsh creditor. 
He sold out at a chattel mortgage sale the household possessions of a poor old woman. She cursed him and his descendants. Your woman shall never be happy, she said. One and all they shall die in sorrow as I die. She hanged herself that night. Do you believe in curses? I don't. But it is the truth that there has never since that day been a happy Edgelow woman, whether she was Edgelow by birth or Edgelow by marriage. Uncle Jim's father was blinded by an explosion of his gun three months after he was married to Cora Graham, the great beauty, and after that he made her life wretched through his jealousy for fifty years, for they lived together that long and he never seemed to realize that she had grown old. He was as madly jealous of her when she was seventy as when she was twenty. Catherine Edgelow was jilted by her lover. She never went out of that house afterward except once. When her false lover was married in Clifton Church, she dressed herself in widow's weeds and went to the wedding. She stood a little behind the bridal party during the ceremony. Nobody dared interfere with her. The bride fainted when she turned and saw her. Catherine was living when I was here that summer long ago. She was incredibly old, and I was terribly frightened. But the bitterest of our ghosts must be great-great-grandmother Edgelow. She was jealous. She thought her husband loved Adela Cooper. That was the beginning of the Edgelow-Cooper feud, you know. No, I didn't know. I never knew what began it. Thought it was something trivial. What did your great-great-grandmother do? She met her husband one night when he was returning, so she thought, from Adela, and threw vitriol in his face. He was blinded for life. Romney shuddered. The sun had dropped into a bank of western cloud, and a chill and a shadow swept over Hill of the Winds and rolled down its sides to the valley. At least she was in earnest. She didn't play at loving, he said, as they turned away. No, but wouldn't it have been better if she had, retorted Miss Edgelow. Undoubtedly. Yet I think I rather like ladies who love in earnest. Would your Sylvia love in earnest? If she loved me at all. But you see she doesn't. Are you quite sure she doesn't? Quite. And you are quite sure you couldn't marry her if she did? Quite. So it is a blessing she doesn't. Exactly. Miss Edgelow turned to the gate that opened from the whispering lane into the Edgelow garden. I think, she said, that I'm going to be very busy for the rest of my stay here. I shall be busy, too, said Romney gloomily. Oh, yes, you have your cereal to finish. Romney wondered how she knew he was writing a cereal. He had never said anything to her about it. Yes, he said very briskly, I must really hurry up with it. My time is nearly up, only three weeks more. And since we are both going to be so busy, we may as well say a polite good-bye now, said Miss Edgelow. She held out her hand. Romney took it, gave it the requisite friendly pressure, dropped it. Good-bye, Miss Edgelow, he said. He lifted his hat and went away whistling. Miss Edgelow, holding her head very high, went back to the Edgelow house. Old Jim was, as usual, reading in his library. Romney Cooper has just told me that he can't marry me. Did you ask him to, pray? I think I did. And he refused you? Practically. Then he has more sense than any Cooper ever had before, said old Jim, returning to his book. Nobody takes me seriously, mourned Miss Edgelow. I suppose I must be fundamentally light. Well, isn't that better than destroying my husband's sight with vitriol, Uncle Jim? Wouldn't you rather have a wife who laughed at you than one who threw vitriol at you? My wife did neither, said old Jim significantly. But she died young, thought Miss Edgelow. She did not say it aloud. There were some things it would not do to say to old Jim. She went up to her room and peeped out. There was a light in the tower room. He is busy at his story, said Miss Edgelow. I don't think he got much material for it from me this evening. 
of the kind he wanted, anyhow. I wonder what a sub-editor's salary is. Then, oddly enough, Miss Edgelow lay down on her bed, buried her face in a pillow, and cried. Romney was not writing. He was bunched up moodily in a chair. Aunt Elizabeth was knitting lace. Samuel was building a pen in the backyard for a couple of pet snakes. Samuel was very happy. Chapter 7 Samuel was happier still for the next two weeks. Romney was his own again. He kept no more trysts in the whispering lane, but devoted himself to Samuel. They fished and swam and lounged together. The tower room was forsaken, and Romney's pen rested on his inkstand. Sometimes he saw Miss Edgelow and her golden balls of fluff in the Edgelow garden, but she never looked his way. Quite often he heard her singing gaily. Soon after that he always whistled gaily. Peace and contentment apparently brooded over Hill of the Winds. Only Aunt Elizabeth was slightly worried. Romney's appetite was poor. Her choicest delicacies did not tempt him, neither did Cousin Clorinda's. Romney had been down to see Cousin Clorinda quite often through the summer, but he had never talked to her of Sylvia, and Cousin Clorinda could not ask him to. Now he went down on another cool, rainy evening when the fogs were coming in on the east wind and the valley was gray and hidden. "'Beloved, how long can two weeks be?' he asked her. "'That depends,' she said. "'On what?' "'In your case, I think it would depend on Sylvia,' said Cousin Clorinda boldly and anxiously. She did not like Romney's lack of appetite and hollowness of eye any better than Aunt Elizabeth. "'There is no such lady as Sylvia,' said Romney. "'She is such stuff as dreams are made of.' "'What about Miss Edgelow, then?' "'An amusing young person. I haven't been talking to her lately.' "'For two weeks, to be exact,' said Cousin Clorinda. She rocked slowly in her chair and looked at him very maternally. Romney had a queer, fleeting feeling that he would like to lay his head on her breast and cry as he used to do long ago when he got hurt, and have her stroke his head and say, "'Never mind, be brave, you'll soon feel better.' "'Make a clean breast of it to me,' said Cousin Clorinda. "'You weren't very sympathetic the last time I tried to talk to you about her.' I don't suppose I'll be sympathetic now, either, but it'll do you good to talk it out. What did you quarrel over? We didn't quarrel. She just dismissed me. I suppose she had got all the amusement out of me that she expected or wanted. Tell me every word both of you said, ordered Cousin Clorinda. Romney did. He had no difficulty in remembering them. They were all too deeply impressed. Cousin Clorinda listened and rocked gently. After he had finished, she continued to rock so long that Romney wondered if she meant to say anything at all. Finally, she said, "'Poor girl!' "'Poor what?' "'Poor girl,' repeated Cousin Clorinda. "'Why do you pity her?' cried Romney, aggrieved. "'Because it must be very hard to be as deeply in love as she is with a young man so utterly insensate and blind and pig-headed as you,' said Cousin Clorinda calmly." "'Why, thank you,' Romney was very sarcastic. "'Thank you. I haven't received so many compliments for a long time. "'Insensate?' "'Yes, insensate. "'A girl like Dorcas Edgelow practically offers herself to you, "'and you practically flout her. "'Cousin Clorinda! "'Blind, because you can't see she's dying for you. "'Pig-headed, because you would rather destroy her happiness and your own "'than ask Jim Edgelow's heiress to marry you.' "'Dearest, you are simply darkening counsel by words without knowledge. "'Miss Edgelow doesn't care a snap of her lovely, slender fingers for me. 
I came to you for the bread of comfort, cousin Clorinda, and you give me the stone of ridicule. Go back to Hilla the Winds, go to Dorcas Edgelow, say to her, I love you, will you marry me? Then if she says no, come back to me and I'll give you all the comfort and sympathy you can desire. I can't do that, said Romney stubbornly. Besides, I have done it, practically, as you say. I've told her I loved Sylvia. She knows well enough who Sylvia is. Yes, and immediately after telling her, you informed her that you were too poor to marry her. Romney, are you really so very poor? I am. Worse, I'm in debt to my doctor. I've been depending on paying him off with the cash I'd get for my cereal this fall, and now I can't get it written, not in a saleable way, anyhow. Job's turkey was a capitalist compared to me. And you have no chance of promotion? Not at present. Not for years, if ever. I suppose the truth is I'm lacking in enterprise, cousin Clorinda. I'm not a pusher. And I've dilly-dallied a bit, I know. Drifted. You see, it didn't seem to matter. As long as I could pay my own way and enjoy life after my own fashion, I was contented. I didn't believe I'd ever really meet Sylvia, so I've rather been sidetracked. Get back to the main line and hustle, said cousin Clorinda. Too late. I can't ask her to wait years for me. Besides, she wouldn't. Then forget her. I can't. Then for goodness sake, said cousin Clorinda in exasperation, try some of my ginger snaps. So, after all, Romney didn't get much sympathy from cousin Clorinda. He went back to Hill of the Winds, feeling that she thought him a rather poor sort of critter. Well, so he was. He was a failure, an utter, errant failure. He had failed in everything in which a man ought to succeed. No wonder Sylvia laughed at him. No wonder Sylvia mocked him. He even wondered that she thought him worthwhile flirting with. How deep her eyes were, how perfect the curve of her throat, how kissable the sweet red curve of her mouth. Romney groaned. Matter? queried Samuel, appearing suddenly halfway up the hill, his wet, laughing face dimly visible in the rainy twilight. Sick? No, but you will be here in this cold east rain with nothing on your back but a torn shirt. Hustle home and dry yourself. You have a cold now. Oh, I'm a fish, said Samuel. Rain never hurts me, no more than a frog. But you had a new ammonia. You gotta be careful. I'm not going to be careful, said Romney recklessly. It would have been better for me if the pneumonia had made an end of me. Samuel, were you ever so unhappy that every beat of your heart hurt you? Nope, said Samuel laconically. You feeling that way? he added uneasily. Samuel, said Romney, if I could just be snuffed out tonight like a candle, I'd like it. All on account of that edgelow skirt, I suppose, said Samuel, less disdainfully than usual, however. A close observer might have thought that he felt a trifle less satisfied with himself than before. Samuel, said Romney, never fall in love. Samuel thought this warning totally unnecessary, but he was worried. He knew Romney well enough by this time to know that the more airily he talked of anything, the more deeply he felt. When Romney was indifferent, he talked quite earnestly. Samuel, when he went to bed that night, wished that after all he had not told Miss Edgelow certain things. He wished it hard for quite a while, and then he gave up wishing anything except that he might get warm and stop shivering. Next day, his uncle sent for the doctor. Samuel was sick for a week before Miss Edgelow heard of his illness through her uncle's housekeeper. She went right down to the hollow. Romney was there, waiting on him. Samuel would have no one else, though they had brought a nurse up from Clifton. He was delirious, but he always knew Romney. Pneumonia? asked Miss Edgelow. Romney nodded. He looked worn and ill himself, for he had not slept much during the week, 
and he was worried over Samuel. He didn't know how fond of Samuel he was until the doctor looked grave over the child. Yes, double pneumonia. We're doing all we can for him, but he's worried over something. It's against him. What is it? We don't know. He keeps saying, I wish I hadn't told her, and begging me to put things straight. I promised to do so, but I haven't an idea what he means, and I don't think he has any confidence that I'm doing what I promise. Can I see him? Oh, yes, but it isn't likely he'll recognize you. Samuel was lying on the bed, staring at the ceiling with dull, fevered eyes. It was not clear whether he recognized Miss Edgelow or not, but he appealed to her. They was all lies, you know. You'll tell her, won't you? Yes, yes, dear. She was very gentle and motherly as she took Samuel's thin, strangely white and clean little paw. Romney saw a look on her face, an expression of her spirit that he had never seen before. He never said one of those things. I made him up. Tell her that. You'll get it straighter than he would. He'd mix it all up. He talks all round things. He never gets to the point. You tell her. I'll tell her. I'll make her understand, promised Miss Edgelow. What'll they do to me for telling lies, queried Samuel. Who, dear? The feller's up there, Samuel pointed to the ceiling. God, and, and the rest. Oh, oh, they'll forgive you, dear, if you're sorry. I am sorry. I wished I hadn't. It's made him want to be snuffed out. I don't want him to be snuffed out. You won't, Samuel gripped her hand. You won't let her snuff him out, will you? She shall not snuff him out, promised Miss Edgelow solemnly. I made Pink Raymer up, too, said Samuel. There ain't no Pink Raymer, only in a book. I took him out of the book. You'll put him back in the book, won't you? Yes, dear. And shut the cover tight? Yes. Now, mind, you mustn't let her snuff him out, said Samuel. The nurse came in then, and Miss Edgelow went out. She did not look at Romney. She paid very little attention to Romney for the next week, though she saw him every day when she came to see Samuel. Samuel was delirious at times yet, but he had evidently given up worrying. Only when he saw Miss Edgelow, he always said, You won't let her snuff him out, will you? And Miss Edgelow always replied, No, I won't let her snuff him out. But she never looked at Romney. On the evening of the day when Samuel took the turn for the better, Romney went to the Whispering Lane. It was three weeks since he had walked there. Miss Edgelow was standing in the shadow of the beeches. Their gloom threw still darker shadows on her glossy hair and deepened the luster of her long blue eyes. She had a kitten on her shoulder and her dress was a young leaf green with a scarlet girdle. Beyond her were tossing young maples whitening in the wind with glimpses of the purple valley beyond them. Romney came up close to her and looked down at her. He was tired and pale, but there was an air of triumph about him. "'Your name isn't Sylvia,' he began. "'But it is,' said Miss Edgelow. "'Sylvia Dorcas Edgelow. I am always called Sylvia at home. Uncle Jim hates the name. He has always called me Dorcas.' Romney tried again. "'You are your uncle's heiress, and I—' "'I am not. Uncle Jim hasn't ever had any intention of leaving me a cent.' His will was made years ago. He has left everything to found a library in Clifton. He thinks I don't know that, but I do. Old Cousin Mary told me. You have been brought up in luxury, and... I was brought up in comfort, and Father gave me a year at school in Paris. After I came back, I graduated in domestic science at MacDonald. I can make bread. I can make my own clothes. The number of useful things I can do is quite appalling. I am poor, but... Honest... "'Sylvia, you must stop interrupting me. "'I cannot allow my wife to interrupt me. "'You are too poor to keep a wife.' "'I'm not. 
I have a letter here in my pocket, hear it crackling, from Clifford Hughes offering me the head editorship of the four magazines he owns. The salary will keep us very comfortably. Besides, to him that hath shall be given. Aunt Elizabeth told me this morning that she had made her will when she took the trip down to Clifton last week, and had left everything she owned to me except the Chippendale sideboard, which is to go to Dr. John, and the colored egg dish, which is to go to Cousin Clorinda. As it happens, the sideboard and the colored egg dish are the only things of Aunt Elizabeth's I've ever coveted. But it means something to me to know that some day my... my, let us say my grandchildren, will inherit this old place. So now will you be good? Have you finished your cereal? asked Miss Edgelow inconsequently. No, I'm working it up to the grand climax now, though. It's coming out better than I expected. How did you know about it? Samuel told me. He also told me you experimented with girls and put their reactions into your stories. At least he did not use those words, but that is what he implied. Little beast! But I did put you in that cereal, Sylvia. Only you were so unmanageable after I had got you in, you persisted in snuffing the hero out. Well, you know, Sylvia looked straight into his eyes, I promised Samuel I wouldn't do that any more. It might have been an hour or a hundred years afterward that Romney said, I want to kiss each of your freckles one by one. It will take some time. Aren't you afraid to marry me? asked Sylvia. There is the curse, you know. You will be a happy woman. A curse is worked out in four generations. You are the fifth. It has spent its force, as all evil things must do. The Edgelow tradition of unhappiness will vanish with the old feud. You will not disappear, nor go insane, nor throw vitriol at your husband. And you, said Sylvia, will not open my letters, nor give me a silk dress I don't want, and refuse me a new hat I do, nor jilt me? It's a bargain, said Romney. Old Jim Edgelow was reading in his library. Uncle Jim, said Sylvia, I am going to marry Romney Cooper in six weeks' time. She was really afraid. Nobody ever knew just how old Jim would react to anything. But old Jim Edgelow had been governed by contraries all his life. He loved to disappoint people. He would rather disappoint them agreeably than not at all. He shut his book, took off his glasses, and said, "'Marry him, then, and be hanged to you. It will infuriate old Elizabeth Cooper anyhow.' "'She didn't seem very angry,' said Sylvia. "'What? Does she know of it already?' "'Oh, yes. We went right to her as soon as we became engaged. She said, "'God bless you. It was old-fashioned, of course,' said Sylvia meditatively, "'but I think I liked it.' Uncle Jim replaced his glasses and opened his book. "'Those whom Elizabeth Cooper has joined together, let not James Edgelow put asunder,' he said. End of section 89 End of Hill of the Winds